Well, hello, everybody out there. Uh, my name is Adrian Antomar. I want to officially welcome you to the first episode, Maiden Voyage of Wrecking Ball, a new podcast series from the Historical Society of the New York Courts. So glad to be with you here today. You may have heard me on the Historical Society of New York Courts podcast a couple times now. I think in spite of those performances, they have decided to bring me aboard for this new series, Wrecking Ball, which is all about the intersection of historic preservation you know that uh that little outfit where little old ladies in tennis shoes go about new york trying to save historic buildings and neighborhoods um the intersection of historic preservation with the law and the great city and state of New York. And I'm so pleased that it has brought two fantastic New Yorkers to our podcast today. Um, going in alphabetical order, um, we have Dr. Christina Greer, and she is a distinguished scholar. She teaches up at Fordham, but you can also see her all over the place, including in the New York Times. Welcome, Dr. Greer. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. I can't wait. And we also have Anthony C. Wood. He has founded a group called the New York Preservation Archive Project, where I serve as a board member. Um, and he is researching a new book on a gentleman who I think is pictured on his lapel. Uh, Tony, welcome. Great to be here. Dr. Greer, turning to you, a lot was happening following World War II in the American city. Um, and that is really when our story of the Landmarks Law begins. If you could just remind us, there was a big war over in Europe and people came back home. What sort of social dynamics were happening in the American city in the years following World War II in the United States? Oh, wow. Well, we've always had people who've come here, especially to cities, New York City in particular, searching for something new, searching for some sort of identity, new or shared. And so you've got folks who are coming over from Europe. You have folks who are coming from the Caribbean. You're starting to see a small percentage of folks coming in from the continent of Africa. But, you know, we still have, you know, Asian Americans moving from the West. We've got folks who are Americans, by the way, Puerto Ricans coming from uh, mainland Puerto Rico onto uh, into New York City. We've got folks from the, the DR. We've got folks from Haiti. We've got folks from you know Jamaica and Bahamas, and you know you name all the all the islands. When you look at a lot of the New York City leadership, you know it's it's the black leaders of New York during the 1950s and 60s. You know you scratch just a little bit the vast majority of them are Afro-Caribbean. So the descendants of not just US Southerners, but also people from the Caribbean and from other nations and islands, to say nothing of Europe, which creates you know, not just the beautiful mosaic that Mayor Dinkins always talked about, but you know, it also creates some complexities. You know, this perception of scarce resources that America uh, has always struggled with. You know, we say it's it's scarce resources. We are the most abundantly resourced nation and city. So it's the perception of scarce resources and the tensions in neighborhoods, who's moving in and who's moving out. You know, uh, we see it in A Raisin in the Sun, uh, in, in the Chicago context, but so many neighborhoods have, have turned over time and time again. So even when we talk about gentrification and sort of, you know, some folks moving back into neighborhoods, well, three generations ago, their grandparents were <laughs> fleeing and running out. So it's like they're kind of coming back uh, in, in some ways. And so this is the beauty of cities because we have industries that have come and gone. We've got so many people who are coming in and willing to live on top of one another um, in this you know, in this way that we push up against one another. And that's what sort of makes New York City so great and so grand. What a beautiful way of summarizing the dynamic at that point and that real beating heart of New York in these post-World War II years. And 
this whole time, as this heart is beating, as things are happening organically, there seems to be a whole cadre of these so-called Moses men hidden out at their bunker out on Randall's Island below the Triborough Bridge where you can't even really see it, making their plans for this new city carefully, methodically, and often ruthlessly. We're talking, of course, of the disciples of Robert Moses, who was called the master builder, who's known as the infamous shaper of New York through public housing, through arterial highways, beaches, parks, you name it. Um, but shoots of resistance to this man and to his men start to form in this post-war crucible. It's true that it really went into light speed uh, right after World War II. In fact, it was getting real traction just before the war when Moses had unsuccessfully tried to force the Brooklyn Battery Bridge onto the city in Lower Manhattan and then was pushing the tunnel that replaced it. Uh, and his punishment to those who opposed him was uh, tearing down Castle Clinton at the tip of Manhattan. And so in response to Moses's kind of heavy-handed, uh, really dictatorial approach, because he controlled so many agencies, um, there was a, a group of people who got together just before the war. Uh, and then when the war came, that basically put that on hold, uh, as so many things were put on hold during the war, including the ultimate demolition of, of Castle Clinton, which Moses couldn't complete because of the war effort required the heavy duty machines that would have destroyed the castle. But it was after the war that then pick, people picked up again. Uh, and with development pressure, apartment buildings coming into New York City, uh, buildings in Midtown being demolished that people never imagined would be imagined, it would be demolished, you know, fully functioning hotels, churches on Fifth Avenue. This rampant change began to really aggregate uh, aggregate and annoy a larger number of New Yorkers. Uh, and I mean, you know, what we really have going on is a conflict of two visions for the city. And so Moses, who I would never see myself as a defender of, had a different vision, though, for what New York City should be. It was making it car friendly. It was adapting New York to serve the car as opposed to serve the people of New York at great human expense. But he had a vision. Uh, he just didn't decide to go to the dark side of the force uh, without a motivation, but it was a vision of the city that clashed and increasingly clashed with neighborhood advocates, civic organizations, and ultimately those forces took years, got enough oomph to actually get a legal, a legal process in place where New York could manage change by having a landmarks law. Dr. Greer, there were other movements afoot in New York and other American cities at this time as well. There was the civil rights movement, which you mentioned a little bit earlier. There was Stonewall and the gay rights movement. There was this burgeoning environmental activism. What, what was the general mood in American cities with all of this activism happening in parallel with historic preservation? Yeah, well, what's so interesting is, you know, my favorite president, which all my students know is LBJ. And, you know, LBJ was never a mayor of a, a city, but during, you know, he was the president during much of, uh, you know, the civil rights movement that we all often talk about. Now, don't forget, the civil rights movement started way before the 1960s because, you know, the Brown v. Board of Education is 1954. So we know that the civil rights movement had to start well before then to get us, to even get us to that moment where Thurgood Marshall goes in front of the Supreme Court and argues uh, on behalf. So... We know that in the 60s, it seems like cities are on fire, right? Literally and figuratively. 
folks are just reaching a boiling point. They're demanding justice in all different types of ways. Don't forget we have, you know, sort of a varying wave of feminism that's that's uh, emerging as well. And we have, you know, Chicano movements that are teaming up with African-Americans. And the reason why I brought up LBJ is because in that context, he says something, I'm paraphrasing my, my dear president, but he, he essentially says, you know, when they're like, okay, President Johnson, you've got the Vietnam War, because don't forget, we've got lots of men who were being drafted and taken away from the workforce and from their families in these cities, right? It's like, you've got the Vietnam War, you've got, um, you know, the civil rights movement, you've got cities that are on fire, you know, unrest, racial unrest, gender unrest, you know, everything is going on. And he says, you know, honestly, like when I think about all of it, it could be worse. I could be a mayor, right? <laughs> and it's, I'm paraphrasing, but this is essentially LBJ is like, my job's hard, but it's nowhere near di as difficult as it is to be a mayor in one of these major urban centers. So we, to say nothing of like the financial context and, you know, my, my advisor and mentor, Esther Fuchs from Columbia University, you know, has a, a great book about mayors and money and the fiscal crisis that we see coming down the pike in the seventies. But this is sort of, you know, we're, we're getting, we're getting close to fiscal crises coming down down the road. So you've got this, this tension that's in the air, mm. right? Don't forget, you've got integration that's happening, yes. forced integration. So you also have white flight. This is in the 60s. Later on, we see middle-class flight in the 80s and 90s, but with, with other non-whites. But right now we have white flight because you have white Americans who are just like, I don't want my kids to go to school with other with, with non-white kids, you know, you've got the rise of the suburb and these outer ring suburbs uh, from cities, you know, because it's like, I don't want my kids going to a swimming pool. So, you know, you mentioned Robert Moses. It's like, he made sure that the, the pools in Harlem were much colder and not even staffed with lifeguards. I mean, that's how much he thought about black folks and Puerto right. Ricans. And don't forget, he didn't like the new Jews either, right? You know, they were sort of, they gave him a bad rap. And so, because they were also immigrants and he didn't think that they were the appropriate type of Jewish folks that he wanted to see in New York City. So you've got all of this unrest and you have mayors trying to manage it with governors and also with the national government. And so this is where we get that tension between sort of, back to the old argument of the federalists and the anti-federalists. What's a state's right issue? What is, you know, a national issue? You know, my dad always tells me when he went to school in Massachusetts, his, his college roommate was an African-American man from South Carolina who was at UMass on a free ride, room board and stipend included because the, the state of South Carolina had to integrate their educational system. And, you know, the beauty and the curse of American democracy is you can always circumvent it. So they said, you know what? Yes, we are forced to integrate. However, we are going to pay, pay Black people to leave the state and go to other cities that may be a bit more welcoming. Now, the idea that Boston's more welcoming than South Carolina should say a lot about the nature of this country, right? <laughs> but here we are. And so I just also want to remind folks when we think about these cities, you know, to paraphrase Malcolm X, you know, when we, we always talk about how the North is so different from the South. He said, everything south of the Canadian border is the U.S. South. And Mark Twain talks about it beautifully and eloquently as well. So we have to remember that a lot of these northern cities weren't these bastions of equality because we can still look at New York City today and know that there are parts of Staten Island, Brooklyn, 
Queens, the Bronx, and the Upper East Side that I wouldn't go to at two o'clock in the afternoon. So we know that we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go as far as racial and gender and sexual equity in a lot of these spaces. And we shouldn't, you know, just think, oh, you know, it's it's Birmingham and it's Mobile and it's the Southern cities that weren't as welcoming. We have to understand the tensions that existed in these Northern cities as well. And there were places where everyone went where there was a little bit of mixing happening in these years and one of them was located at the southernmost tip of Manhattan Island and Tony mentioned it a little bit earlier and this was really one of the seminal fights on the preservation front in these times and it's called Castle Clinton. It's one of these so-called old places. It is a ring-like fort all the way down in lower Manhattan and Tony I was just hoping we could pause for a moment because this was one of those um, those fights that set the stage for the landmarks law that we're discussing today because of course we have the Moses men and all of the factors that we're speaking about. We have Albert Bard and his scenic sisters and here we have the battleground at which they fought and really set the stage for everything that came later. So what is Castle Clinton and, and why does it matter? Well, this is now, we're, we're talking a much earlier time than the doctor was just referencing. So we're back to the late 30s and the 1940s. Uh, and by the way, the, the point that was made that is, is so important for people to keep in mind is that these movements happened decades before the kind of marquee quality events that people associate, whether it's civil rights or, or in, in this term, the landmarks law. You know, these movements that led to these accomplishments started decades before, right, in, in ways that, that most people aren't really aware. But I think what you were referencing in particular was at the tip of Manhattan, within the walls of Castle Clinton, was the New York Aquarium, which was this site that was like the most popular tourist site in New York uh, at the time, much more than ballparks, anything else, uh, that it was housed in, it was actually a Ming, a Ming King Ming White structure within the old walls of Fort Clinton, Castle Clinton, um, and that uh, was basically uh, suffered revenge from Robert Moses. So as I mentioned before, he had really wanted a bridge that would link uh, lower Manhattan with Brooklyn. Uh, he believed, I mean, again, very much in align with his sense of what a city should be, that bridges were beautiful, eloquent, stru elegant structures, and tunnels were, you know, he had some very negative things to say about it. Uh, but anyway, he was fought back. He was uh, thanks to FDR and the War Department, and a longer story than we have time for today, uh, the bridge plan was scuttled, uh, and he was forced then to have a tunnel. The tunnel did not need to, to, to unearth, destroy the, the Castle Clinton, but Moses' is kind of revenge, uh, and if you look at the documents, it's, it's clear that's what it's all about, uh, decided that he would destroy the castle, and the first thing he did was destroy the aquarium. Uh, he decided to move the New York Aquarium out to the Coney Island area, after dumping many of the fish into the sea. Uh, and, and of course, the great uh, Bob Caro has a good chapter on this in The Power Broker. And again, if anyone listening to this has not read The Power Broker, quit listening to us and read The Power Broker. Because, uh, it's, it's an essential book to understand why New York looks the way it does today. So anyway, Moses then uh, was pushing for the demolition of Castle Clinton. And one of the great historic, again, underappreciated figures, George McEnany, uh, was one of four people who led the battle and ultimately was the ultimate leader of forces trying to save the castle, uh, which was not a great architectural treasure. It was a historic treasure. Uh, and in a sense, it was, you know, when we did get the Landmarks Law, the Landmarks Law was the coming together of kind of two streams of, of civic interest. 
One was preserving sites of historical association, right? And the other was preserving sites of aesthetic quality, kind of the city beautiful movement, right? And it's those two kind of intellectual streams that ultimately get united in the landmarks law. But no one was pretending Castle Clinton was a beauty queen, right? But historically, it was, it was seen as kind of so much of the essence of New York originally as a fort. It was then the immigrant station that welcomed immigrants initially. It then became this arena where Jenny Lynn performed and all sorts of cultural events happened. Then it became this wonderful aquarium. And then Bob Moses in his wisdom decides to you know, trash the whole place. Uh, as I said before, his efforts to totally destroy it failed. He got the aquarium ripped down. He got it down to the 12-foot walls that survived. Couldn't get them demolished because of World War II. And when, when World War II stopped and things picked up again, the great George McEnany relit the effort to save the castle and finally outfoxed Robert Moses by having it turned into a national monument. But all those efforts trained and kind of led, installed in some civic leaders a total distrust of Robert Moses and basically the recognition that some process, some formal process was needed to rein in kind of the unnecessary loss of treasures like that because of somebody like Robert Moses, you know, running afoul. Right. And then in the early 1960s, another battleground emerges. This battleground often gets most of the credit for the Landmarks Law, and Tony and others have written, eh, maybe not quite so much. But, you know, Dr. Greer, you're on the board of the Riders Alliance. You travel in and out of New York all the time. Um, can you guess about what might have been characterized as a subterranean rabbit warren where people board and get off trains in Midtown, maybe in the 34th Street area? What building are we talking about, and what does it mean to New Yorkers? today but are we talking about penn station yeah we might be <laughs> there's a chance you know um uh, and i'm a former board member of writers alliance i had to get off some boards just so i could get some more books done um <laughs> they do great work and I'm, I'm really proud of the work that i did with them especially when we were working on fair fairs but you know what's so interesting is you still go down these escalators into this dark dank system where you're catching these these trains where when you go to other cities i was just taking the channel from paris to london it's nothing like that you know even the tube in london is nothing like that you know when you go on the metro in paris it's nothing like that just and i won't even get to to japan where it's just like it's out of the jetsons basically but i think it also goes with who is designing these these uh, stations? Do we have real diversity? And I mean, not just racial and ethnic. Do we have gender and ability diversity when we're thinking about 21st century designs? Because clearly, when I go into Moynihan Station, I feel like Robert Moses and friends designed the station. <laughs> it is such a failed, missed opportunity in the year of our Lord 2022 that I can't believe we spent so much money, time, and resources to replicate an old rickety wheel. And so it's New York City. We've got people from all over the world with their massive luggage, and you see them struggling and struggling to say nothing of everyday New Yorkers of varying abilities. And to me, it's it's a sin and a shame, and it's embarrassing that we've we've essentially just abdicated any sort of creativity when it comes to our transportation process, when it comes to a place like Penn Station. Uh, or even Grand Central. Right, and you mentioned the old station across the street from Moynihan, you know, the, the bones of, of what was, but there was, of course, an older station still. Mm -hmm. um, this was the 1910 concoction, also McKimbead and White, Tony mentioned earlier, um, and, and it wasn't three unified systems. It was a single unified system. It was called Pennsylvania Station for a reason um, by its creator, the Pennsylvania Railroad. Um, 
But as this ground in the preservation battle shifts north, Penn Station really does become what we think of today as a major focal point. And, and the reason for the Landmarks Law, in reality, as we alluded to earlier, was a little bit more complicated than that. But nonetheless, within the myth of the American imagination, Penn Station takes on a special significance um, because of its demolition, because of its loss. And it's often seen as the domino that needed to fall in order for us to get our Landmarks Law. But Tony, what happened at Penn Station in the 60s? Well, you know, Penn Station and, and Grand Central were both threatened. Uh, you know, they had fallen in, you know, bad maintenance, uh, disrepair, uh, you know, dirty. You have to also understand, you know, the 50s and the early 60s, it was all about new and modern and clean and sleek. Uh, and, you know, the notion of adaptive reuse or even, you know, restoration was not, not present yet, didn't come on the scene. Uh, and so in light of this, um, you know, this, again, some of the, the same planner types who are kind of top down, et cetera. And in this case, it was the owner of the building, Penn Station, uh, you know, decided they would replace it. Uh, and I think what the shock value was, um, I mean, the building really wasn't that old, uh, was still functioning very well, just, you know, kind of it had been, its beauty had been certainly eroded by some modern changes in the interiors and we say lack of maintenance. Uh, but I think people just didn't even imagine that it would be demolished, right? Because it had been threatened earlier. Um, and I think, and it also the demolition took three long years, right? While the station was still in use. So it was a very much an in-your-face experience as people saw this grand, the outside was still the grand facade and all, saw that being basically jackhammered into dust, right? Uh, or your wrecking ball uh, came into play. Um, and so it, it really, it, it got, it became a marquee, if you will, moment in what was happening in the city. Uh, and other things were going on. Other buildings were being lost. I mean, a lot of things that were familiar to people, whether in Greenwich Village, Brooklyn Heights, the Upper East Side, uh, I mean, those are the, the ones that have, that have come to mind and where we've seen documented kind of citizens, groups, hundreds of people beginning to protest. It was, it was change was happening so dramatically and it was really a sense that the city was out of control, that the architecture and building of the city was out of control. And on top of the issues we've heard before, urbanistically, they were out of control. So there was a sense of, I think, for people of, of you know, what is going on in our city. And it really led to, you know, uh, Kent Barwick, a former landmark chair, once said that he thought the only two laws that he knew of in New York that the citizens demanded that were bottom-up laws with a landmarks law, which is true, uh, it, was, it was demanded by the people and, and finally government responded, and the pooper scooper law. You, <laughs> you can decide if there are any other similarities between the two. But in, in a sense, it's true. It was a law demanded by the people and, you know, Wagner, who ultimately signed it, uh, he basically was embarrassed into it. I mean, the city, uh, the city, his city was, it was clear he was not in charge of what was happening in his city. Uh, but he also didn't embrace this thing uh, full, full bore. In fact, when the law was signed, he basically stood there and said, you know, by the way, if this causes any problems for the real estate industry, we're, we'll, we'll amend it right away. So, you know, don't worry. Don't worry, guys. Uh, so it, even, even when it was adopted, it was a huge cultural shift and, and on rocky ground uh, for those formative years. Right. And of course, you know, Penn Station wasn't the end of the Landmarks Law story. It wasn't even really the beginning of the Landmarks Law story, but it was this moment. And, you know, Dr. Greer, we see these 
pictures all over the internet. We just celebrated um, a major anniversary um, just this August of the Penn Station picket where you had Jane Jacobs, I believe, Tony, or am I mistaken? There was also, um, yeah, I believe was there uh, Arlene, Arlene Saarinen, Philip Johnson, as, long, as well as a bunch of other people, but they were, a lot of them were basically kind of young Turk architects, many of them modernists, uh, you know, uh, who, who were just outraged that, that something like this could, could happen in the city. So, and, and the picket that you're referring to, there was a famous picket line in August of, of 19, 19, what, 60, 62. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, that was not organized by the AIA. That was not organized by the Municipal Art Society. That was organized by this rump group of young Turks with some elders behind them helping them, uh, you know, putting, you know, a group called Agbany, you know, and, and they just made it happen. It was, it was a citizen's, it, it was organizing, right? It was basically a, almost a, a relatively youth-led demonstration. Uh, and then they, they brought in more senior folks, you know, as one always wants to for, for you know, add a little <laughs> put an ominous grease in the mix to just give a little, you know, little weight to things. But it was really young people who were just outraged about what was happening to their city. And Dr. Greer, we've been lucky enough over the last couple of years to, to bear witness to young people joining um, in protest on the streets of the American city. You know, strategically and all of that, you know, what do you make of how this unfolded back in the day, knowing how protests work and how protests don't work? Do you think that a group of idealistic young people holding up signs can really make a change in the long run in the United States of America? Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that, you know, protest politics works. I mean, we've never, at least Black people, have never gotten anything without protest in this country. So we have to see it as a both and. You know, I always tell my students, it can't just be protest and then you pack up your signs and you go home and you go, go to sleep. It also has to be followed up by electoral politics. But protest politics has been able to push politicians to change their behavior. And then we have to follow up with our behavior at the ballot box, either to keep them in office or get them out of office if they don't pay attention to the protests. And then inevitably, things get a little dormant or complacent or latent and we have to protest again. And so it's this ebb and flow of both and in American society that we have to make sure we consistently pressure politicians because I don't know many scenarios where we've gotten real substantive change without people taking to the streets and demanding that change. You know, I think is what is it Machiavelli says, you know, problems is easily won or easily lost. And so the great thing about American democracies is we don't tend to swing very frequently. We have in the past, you know, but, you know, our institutions slow down the levers of progress to make sure that we don't uh, have these extreme, you know, whims of the people. However, that, that slow lever to protect us from, you know, changing fads, we get that. But that also means when we do need to change, it does take time and we have to consistently push. We have to push and push. And oftentimes we have to do the internal and external work of politics. And so that's taking to the streets to, to make our, our wishes and demands known. And then following that up with the electoral politics piece, the insider outsider politics that we have to participate in. And so as, as African-Americans, that's the only way we've ever gotten anything. And so we can see that it's translated to other communities and other policy spaces as well. Your, yeah. point, your point is right, though, that movements then need a booster shot periodically, right? <laughs> I think it is a day of booster shots that we all are living through. Um, and I think that's, that's very true with preservation. And, and I would say that, you know, a lot of us feel today uh, preservation in New York could, could use a, a good booster shot or kick, kick in some part of the anatomy. 
uh, because I think people are beginning to take things for granted in some of that change that spurred people to activism before of, of a city out of control, a city that people are losing any sense of familiarity with, a city that's losing its livability is, is happening again. Um, and, and preservation is only a small piece of that, but it's an important piece in terms of, of a livable city, a safe city, a sustainable city. Oh, Tony, I think you stumbled upon the ulterior motive for this podcast. As you well know, uh, we have, I'm sure, a lot of eager converts listening in today as they contemplate the past, present, and future of the town they call home. And as we've spoken about throughout this entire conversation, this crystallizes in a statute in New York City's Landmarks Law, which um, Robert Wagner, Mayor Wagner, signs on April 19th of 1965. Um, it establishes a formal process for designating landmarks in the city of New York. So, you know, Dr. Greer may love landmark X, but it may not be on the list of landmarks that is officially recorded by the city of New York and officially protected by this statute with teeth. Um, you know, Tony, listen, it's a statute. We are on a legal podcast but we do still want to keep things lively. So if you could just high level summarize for us the Landmarks Commission that this Landmarks Law sets forth and how it functions. Oh, well, to make a kind of short summation of all that. So the Landmarks Law was basically created to make sure no building of, of importance to the city was unnecessarily lost, right? And so what it ended up doing was creating a process where buildings that were of architectural, historical, or cultural important could be designated as such by this Landmarks Commission appointed by the mayor uh, that could, would identify those buildings and then regulate them over time uh, so that landmark changes to landmarks have to go in front of the Landmarks Commission. Uh, it doesn't, the landmark designation does not prevent demolition. There's a kind of a bailout clause to keep the law constitutional uh, used very infrequently. The genius of the law and part of the weakness of the law is the law was written, uh, if it had been more specific about what in the definition of a landmark when it was passed in 1965, it would have used styles, for instance, and it would not have recognized, you know, Art Deco buildings, Victorian buildings, all sorts of buildings we love today would have never fit the criteria. But the criteria they came up with basically is whatever the sitting landmarks preservation commission feels is a building that meets the, the vague criteria of the law, the appropriately vague criteria of the law of being architecturally, culturally significant, um, socially significant, uh, is designated a landmark. And then also in terms of what's appropriate to, to change that in terms of appropriateness and changes to landmarks, again, it leaves it within, within the, dis the discretion of the Landmarks Preservation Commission. So it's much a living law. The problem is over time, uh, different commissions have had different in, in kind of different approaches to using the power that the law has given them. And I would say many people today, myself included among them, feel the commission has not used the full range of powers that was given to them in 1965 by the city council to protect what's important in the history of New York City. Particularly missing have been rights of cultural importance, have largely, have not received the attention that they deserve. There's also a political dimension to this. Whatever the commission decides as a landmark has to go to the city council to be approved, so and the mayor. So there's a political dimension to it. The commission is also historically, it is beginning to address it uh, seriously, but it's also ignored a lot of neighborhood, ignored a lot of cultural important sites that aren't had not been seen as culturally important to the mainstream 
frankly, it's ignored sites that were culturally important to the mainstream, <laughs> but it's particularly ignored sites that are important to the many communities that make up New York City and are part of its important history. We're so lucky to have the commission, but we also need, back to the notion of a booster, I think we need to really make sure that that law is used as fully as it should be, particularly in a time of such dramatic change to the physical landscape of our city. And so there's so many neighborhoods now, particularly outside of Manhattan, that are experiencing change and see the law as something that can help protect what they value in their neighborhood. And so recently there was that tragic loss out in, on Willoughby Street, I think you know the building I'm talking about, Adrian, that the local community, you know, very diverse community, diverse elected officials, all were demanding the Landmarks Commission to protect that building and the Landmarks Commission screwed up. So, you know, in essence, as you began this by referring to preservation as a purview of the old little white ladies, uh, I mean, we owe them a lot. They helped put things in place, but that's not the preservation movement of today. Some of the most robust preservation activities actually happening in diverse neighborhoods across the city and, and we need it and it's about time for it. Right, and what I always say is, yes, we have little old ladies in tennis shoes and they're amazing. You should try hanging out with them sometimes, but it is a much, much broader coalition than that traditional characteristic, I think, says. And, you know, Dr. Greer, Tony's talking about landmarks, but this statute also protects scenic landmarks. So landmarks like Central Park enjoy a degree of protection, not the same level of protection. Um, it protects interior landmarks. So thinking of the old Waldorf Astoria's interiors, those were uh, designated prior to the Chinese insurer Anbang um, doing whatever they're doing inside of that structure now. Um, and it also protects historic districts, which when you're walking down a New York City street and you see those street signs turn from green to brown, that's actually telling you that you're in an officially designated historic district. So it's not just the buildings, it's the whole urban fabric. And I was hoping that you could just give us a little bit of perspective on why we care about the neighborhood um, as something worth protecting in New York and really in the American city as well. Why that? Well, because Adrian, cities are nothing but neighborhoods. Right. That's all they are, right? And we, as a nation, don't really respect history. This country doesn't really respect our history. It doesn't, <laughs> we're not really interested in teaching accurate history. We can get into that in a different episode of the podcast. But it's really important to remember what has taken place in these particular neighborhoods, how they've ebbed and flowed and how they've changed and people who've moved in and out of these neighborhoods. I mean, for example, you know, some of the things we talk about at the Tenement Museum, when we think about the Lower East Side, you know, it's a historic neighborhood, not just for Jewish immigrants, not just for Italians, not just for Irish folks, but for Chinese Americans and Puerto Ricans, and even a small population of African Americans as well. And so we need physical markers, you know, to show us that we're in historic space. But in this desire to build, build, build and change, and, you know, cities obviously have to evolve and, you know, people love a changing skyline, but there has to be something something to be said about respecting the stories and the lives of the individuals who are in these particular neighborhoods. And so, you know, when I was in graduate school and everyone used to joke and call me like, you know, the mayor of my neighborhood when I was in grad school, but, you know, I, I'd I push back and say, I'm like, listen, I'm a 23 year old living in New York City by myself. This neighborhood 
is what I have. These people need to know my comings and goings. If they don't see me, they need to worry. They need to know where the girl is who comes to, you know, the market every morning and every evening on her way to and from school. Like they need to know that I am a participant in this neighborhood. And so if they don't see me for a few days, there should be some questions. And so when we think about the old school way of how we treated our neighbors, whether they were like us or not. I mean, that's, you know, one of the beautiful stories that we we tell at the Tenement Museum in the, in the new 97 Orchard Building is, you know, between a Jewish and Italian, two families that, you know, are friends. And this is a post-Holocaust Jewish family. So, you know, mm. even having a mezuzah on the outside of the door was something quasi-radical, right? But we hear stories of, you know, these two young girls who were friends and the Italian girl says, well, you know, well, my friend always, she came over for dinner, but like my mom's making, you know, pork sausages and all types of things. It's like, she can't always eat with us, but that's okay, right? And so we also think about how food is such a part of these neighborhoods and it's so many different ways that we think about culture. Uh, you know, one of the, one of Bloomberg's former community affairs commissioner that was telling him about some of the work that I do. And he was saying when his grandfather came here, a Russian Jew spoke zero English, but delivered butter. You know, and, and so he, of course, the social, political, and economic networks where you team up with people from your culture, right, in particular neighborhoods. And it was like, how did his grandfather survive? It's like, well, he delivered butter throughout Manhattan on horseback. And, you know, he asked, you know, the folks who hired him from his community back home, right, who gave him a place to stay, tales old as time across every culture. You go, you find some people who, who are like you, who either speak your language or from your town back home, they give you a job, they give you a place to stay temporarily. And, you know, he said, well, how will I know where to go? And it's like, don't worry, the horse knows, right? <laughs> the horse knew where to go in New York until he learned where to go in New York. But, you know, part of this Your Story, Our Story project that I do with the Tenement Museum, to me is so important. It's because so many of our stories are the same story. Like your grandparents' story may not be identical to mine, but when we think about migration and immigration and the objects that we had in our homes that meant something to us the plastic on the furniture the oh, yes. big tv in the living room with the doily on it you know like it, you know the picture of martin luther king if you're black but white jesus too if you're christian you know all these things everybody had the same house and so there's going back to your original question is like why is this important it's important because it reminds us of a time where it was yes you know that sound too old but like it was a little bit simpler but we were also really connected in a different way and so when you start to dig through those stories you do hear about these real friendships and relationships between people of varying racial and ethnic groups you know who who shared a class component and they were together you know, and so these are people who have left their families, whether it was from overseas or down south. And so how you build these connections, whether it's women through cooking and they were staying home when their husbands, you know, had jobs or, you know, their husbands had similar factory jobs and they're sort of literally working side by side in certain contexts. It's important that we remember that part of our city as we lead more isolated lives because of technology, because of COVID, because of a whole host of reasons. But what is the point of living in a city if we aren't going to communicate with one another? Mm. That's the case. Move out to the suburbs where you can have your massive SUV and your driveway and your garage and not speak to people and have like a homogenous existence where everybody goes to the Target, the Marshalls, the Old Navy, and, you know, the supermarket. Like, 
the whole point of New York, the reason why we pay this money, the reason why we deal with, you know, the rats and the, and the drama and the schlepping up and down, you know, subway stations is because we want to feel alive. We want to feel these, these differences that at a certain point in time don't feel that different. Well, you know, one of the points you raised earlier about how over time neighborhoods have served different people as they've moved through, mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why preservation and particularly his saving historic neighborhoods are so important is that they're the stage set that kind of allows for that interaction. The groups may evolve over time and be different and overlap and transition and, and hopefully kind of recognize who was there before them. But it's, it's that stage set that really allows that urban life to happen, which is why it's so important that those neighborhoods are protected because that doesn't happen when you look at, you know, 100 story buildings, you know, jammed next to each other, which is kind of other people's vision of the future of the city. That doesn't create neighborhood the way that our traditional neighborhoods, the physical dimension of them makes community possible. And, and I'd like to think more and more people are wanting community now coming out of COVID, reacting against this intense technology. They want authenticity and community. And that's what really, I think the landmarks law ultimately was all about protecting. What a lovely note um, as we near the close of this conversation. And, um, you know, before we part ways, right, we've spoken a lot about this statute and we spoke a lot about how we got here. I want to turn our energies a little bit towards the future now that our listeners have heard what each of you have had to say about the importance of this statute. Um, and for our conversation here today, I suggested but did not require um, that we have a landmark that sort of resonates with us as our backdrop here today. Um, behind me is the Cass Gilbert New York Westchester and Boston Railway Station up in the Bronx. A landmark that people up in the Bronx are really fighting to preserve um, right now and unfortunately is experiencing a little bit of demolition by neglect. And I hope that someday this ends up on our official list of designated New York City landmarks. Now, Dr. Greer, I am so glad that you don't have a landmark as your background because we can see your book, Black Ethnics, and hopefully people will go pick up a copy. Um, but as you're considering the 21st century city, what areas, what buildings, what cultures, take it anywhere you wish, but what, where do you think we should focus our preservation energies in this new century? Well, you know, as someone who teaches at a university, I'm very concerned about the footprint of American universities in cities. Yes. And in a lot of ways, it feels like American universities are real estate agents who happen to teach kids on the side. Yes. And so when I think about the footprint of a place like Columbia University, where I spent many a year getting my PhD mm -hmm. or NYU with, it seems like a, a land grab, like a, a smashing grab. And so, you know, I am concerned about uh, what Harlem will look like as Columbia's, you know, the original plan from the fifties and sixties was to essentially just buy every parcel of land from the main campus all the way up to the med school. And obviously the community protested and fought back and they were not able to do that. But we also have seen the Columbia's done it building by building, block by block. Um, and so that Harlem real estate developers keep naming it so many different Hamilton Heights and whatever Heights, you know, it's all these new names. Um, so that's a real concern for me as the university uh, becomes a more global university and decides that they, they need more space. Um, and, you know, part of my ire is because of some of these invisible boundaries and some of these boundaries that aren't so invisible. And so, you know, with universities like Fordham in the Bronx, Columbia specifically, that literally have gates, 
uh, mm. that sort of aren't welcoming to the people around said community. And so when we ask ourselves, how many people from Morningside Heights in Harlem actually are at Columbia University? Right. Or how many people from the Bronx are actually at Fordham University in the Bronx? Or, or Fordham University in, in Midtown, where I teach in Manhattan? You know, how many people from the housing projects across the street say nothing of the displacement of Puerto Rican communities that happened with, you know, don't forget the Catholic Church, fourth largest landowner in the city. So I, I think Harlem for me would be an area and obviously, you know, I, I feel like downtown Brooklyn in many ways is, is sadly almost gone, you know, with, with Barclays and, you know, shame on you, Jay-Z, for huh. helping that happen with your little 0.1% stake in, right. in the Nets at the time. So there are parts of Brooklyn sort of surrounding downtown Brooklyn too, that they might not be too late, but we have to make sure that as the Barclays tentacles extend, we don't end up with essentially like a suburban mall area, which is starting to sniff around and look like that, you know, you've got your, your Marshalls and, you know, your, your chain stores, plural, and your Shake Shack. I feel like Shake Shack is the new uh, canary in the mine where it's like, it's a wrap. Like when you've got a Shake Shack, there's a Shake Shack on the corner of 116th and Broadway, right? At, at Columbia University. So it's like the Shake Shack for me is the bellwether where it's like, okay, we've crossed the Rubicon now. Um, and so those would be sort of two areas that I'm, I'm really thinking about. Thank you so much for that. And, and Tony, listen, I mean, you are enforcing the Landmarks Law every day, so it's no surprise that you're a rule follower and have a, a background of your own, background of your own rather. Um, what, what's behind you today and, and where do you want to focus your preservation energies and, and those of the broader community? Well, I would have to say what's behind me is a New York landmark, but not That's for right. It's behind me. It's 25 Broad Street, but it is where Albert Bard was the first tenant in 1901 and had his office there till he died in 1963. So for me, it's kind of where, where the thinking behind the law and all that he did battling billboards across America happened, right? So it's a reminder of basically a, a, a dedication, a passion, a single-minded focus over the decades that was required to get New York the ability to preserve what's special to us. And a reminder that we have to defend that. You know, it's, it's continual, as we said you know, earlier, these things come in waves. So I think the focus in the future, besides focusing on neighborhoods that haven't received the attention they deserve, is focusing on getting the landmarks law back in application and operation uh, the way it was meant to be. I mean, to look back at how it was used in the 1980s. And one of the reasons for the New York Preservation Archive project is, is basically to remind people of how the law has been used over time. And that at one point we had a much more robust landmarks commission uh, that was willing to do what some of us feel the law requires them to do to preserve New York's really irreplaceable landmarks. Uh, so to me, the focus needs to be on reinvigorating the law, uh, getting the commission populated by commissioners who, are, who really understand that responsibility. Uh, how to make that happen when we have that answer, you know, along with the winning lottery numbers, we'll be in good shape. Well, it all starts here on Wrecking Ball, Tony. I, I really must thank you both for your contributions and for a thoroughly enjoyable uh, conversation here, um, whatever time you're listening to it. Um, the book is Preserving New York from Tony and from Dr. Greer is Black Ethnics. Um, you should also check out her podcast, FAQ NYC, which is fantastic. Um, so listeners, stick with us, but we are going to excuse Dr. Greer from this seminar and we will bid adieu to Tony Wood. Um, Tony, Chrissy, thank you so much for spending your afternoon with me. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Adrian.
Wrecking Ball is brought to you by the Historical Society of the New York Courts, which is dedicated to preserving just that, New York's vast legal history. For more information about that important group, just Google Historical Society of the New York Courts or visit history.nycourts.gov. And we're back for a feature that we would like to call your Daily Ada Louise where we delve deep into the archives of the famous, and some say infamous, critic of architecture and all things urbanism from the New York Times, among many other outlets. Now, the late Ada Louise Huxtable was quite prolific. You may know many of her quotes, including that one about how we got the Penn Station that we deserve because we didn't stand up for our landmarks. But her archives are a veritable trove of all sorts of information about the city and how we save it. So today's quote comes from an essay entitled, not dramatically whatsoever, How to Kill a City. And the quote reads, the days of small shops for fresh ground coffee or odd electronic gadgets or conviviality in a not too pure circa 1827 bar are past or numbered. It's not very convivial in the personal credit department of a bank and the place smells of computers, not coffee. If New Yorkers survive the rape of the city, or just crossing the street or breathing the air, there is one last lethal urban hazard, boredom. Now, we can't quite protect you from all of those hazards out there to the historic buildings and neighborhoods that we love, but we promise that we will protect you from boredom here on Wrecking Ball as we continue our series. So make sure to like, follow, subscribe this podcast feed wherever you find it so that you can be in tune for future episodes. And in the meantime, we'll see you soon.